0: Will open up or turn on your copy of God's Word, or if needed, there's certainly one in the pew there, or it should be on the screen. We're going to be reading out of the first chapter of 1 Timothy, starting in verse 12 through verse 17. If you would follow along as I read out loud for us. 1 Timothy chapter 1, starting in verse 12. I thank Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus, our Lord, because He judged me faithful, appointing me to His service. though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Well, welcome to 2019. And as you all know, in our culture, we have a tradition... It's a tradition at this time of the year, whereby uh, we evaluate ourselves, our, our our last year's lives against a particular standard, and where necessary, we change ourselves to more uh, align with that standard. We call that New Year's resolutions. Now, the standard can vary. Um, It may be that some of you have begun to employ a standard that has to do with your physical physique. Could be that some of you all are looking at a financial standard. Maybe you're going, I need to save more in 2019. Or how about this? I need to give back to God more. That's a good one, right? Preachers should say that, right? Maybe it's a standard that has to do uh, with um, relationships, uh, maybe you're, you're hoping that you'll have a higher quality of friendships in 2019, or it could be something to do with, with marriage. Maybe you want a greater peace and harmony in your marriage, or, or maybe it has to do with parenting, um, any number of things with relationships. Uh, or it could simply just be uh, an idea of, of the standard could be, I just want to experience more happiness. All sorts of standards that uh, our culture applies to the practice of New Year's resolutions. Now, for Christians, really, New Year's resolutions are a way of life. Now, we don't call them New Year's resolutions. We use some, some different vernacular, different Christianese, if you will, we, we call this process of evaluating ourselves against the standard and making changes, we call it a life of repentance. See, we, we understand we have a standard. He is Jesus Christ. And we are to daily be reflecting how our thinking, how our actions, how our attitudes line up with our standard Jesus Christ. And where necessary, we need to repent from thinking or action or attitude that is out of conformity with Jesus Christ. And we, be, we, we need to begin employing thinking and acting and attitude that is in line with, in conformity to Jesus Christ. And this whole process is a daily aspect of the Christian's life. And again, we call it a life of repentance. So, the culture's got nothing on us. We do New Year's resolutions every day, all the time, all year long. To that end this morning, what I would like to do is is help us with our life of repentance. Very specifically, what I'd like to do is identify a particular idea that Paul lays out in this text And give us the opportunity to evaluate ourselves against this idea. Now, in in general, the idea that, that Paul identifies here has to do with the kingship of Jesus. Now, I also believe that we as humans have this tendency within us. We have this sense within us that we're the king. And we don't, we don't say that consciously. We don't wake up in the morning and first thing, look in our mirror and go, you're the king, you're in charge today. We don't do that. We're way too sophisticated for something that honest. But there is this feeling within our heart that we really believe we're the captain of our own ship, that we're in charge Let me try and illustrate this where I think we can identify it. Let's say any of us have decided that we want something or we want to do something and we're committed to it. We believe it's the right thing. It's a good thing. Uh, um, I'm, I'm going to do X. And so someone who's in authority over our life tells us no. Or a peer that we value Disagrees with our decision. What is that initial response that comes out of the very center of us? I think that initial response is indicating that at the, at the base, we start out thinking, I'm in charge. I'm an individual. I have rights. I'm the king. Now, that, that, that center, let's say the, uh, the authority has said no or the peer has said, I disagree. The the response can manifest in a couple of different ways. And we typically don't stay there, but it's that initial response. It could be a response where we bristle. Who do they think they are? They're crazy. I know this is what I need to do. I'm, no way, forget them. Or out of that same attitude, it could be a different response. It's really coming from the same attitude, the same heart idea, but it looks totally different. It's more of a victim. Oh, if they only understood, if they would just listen to me correctly. Both of those responses indicate an attitude, a center within us that I think is touching upon that idea that thinks I am the king, I am in charge, I'm an American, I have rights, you can't tell me what to do. Well, in this letter that Paul has written to Timothy, most likely Paul is at the end of his, his time. Timothy is his protege, and he's giving him some instructions. Specifically in chapter 1, Paul is instructing Timothy to deal with false teachers. He charges him to address some false teachers. And then in the middle of this charge, Paul diverts to a paragraph where it is thanksgiving and praise. That's the paragraph that that we read. And embedded in this paragraph is this perspective about who Jesus is and who Paul is that I want us to identify, digest, and then begin to evaluate our own perspective against. And where we need to repent, may God grant us repentance. Repentance. Here, in the best way that I can, is, is this perspective that, that Paul lays out in a single sentence. And then I want to I tease out three aspects from the text that begin to fill in this whole idea here. Here it is. Jesus is the only king, and Paul is a privileged servant to that king. That's this perspective that that Paul lays out in this paragraph as he moves into this thanksgiving and praise of God. Embedded in there is this this perspective that Paul has that, that Jesus and Jesus alone is the only king of the entire universe. And then Paul understands himself to be a servant of this only king and not just a servant, a privileged servant. Now, let me pull out three ideas that I think begin to, to support that. Uh, you all follow along here. The first one is very clearly seen in uh, verse 12. And, and it's really identifying that Jesus is the king and he appointed Paul to service. Look, look back at the text with me. Look what he says here in verse 12. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Now, let's go back and look at that for a moment. Paul is reflecting back on his past, and he's, he's identifying that it was Christ Jesus, the Lord, who gave him strength. Well, what is he meaning there? Is he talking about physical strength? Well, I think what Paul's referencing there is his salvation, is his spiritual strength. The same way in the Old Testament that that, uh, Samson, the character, was given physical strength by God, was tied to his hair, you know, he was able to defend Israel and topple the building on their enemies. In the same manner, Paul is using the idea of strength here, but I think he's referencing spiritual strength. He's referencing his salvation. It was Christ Jesus, our Lord, who gave me spiritual life, spiritual strength. And then Paul identifies that Jesus judged me faithful. Now, what he's referencing there is Christ judged Paul to be a trustworthy servant, and then Paul identifies there that He appointed me to service. Do you see what Paul, the perspective that Paul has here? He recognizes that Jesus is the King and that the King has put Paul in a place and a position within his kingdom. Now, very specifically for Paul, this position was that of apostle. We know that Paul was tasked with um, uh, planting churches. He went on missionary journeys. Uh, He was an apostle who had authority. Uh, God actually used him to give us uh, much of the New Testament That specifically was Paul's service that was appointed by King Jesus. So the whole point that I think Paul is is driving home here for us is that Jesus is the king and he appoints you, he puts you in a place for his service. Now let me illustrate that. I want you to turn to the last chapter of the Gospel of John. John chapter 21, there's there's to me a a fascinating encounter that Jesus has with um, Peter that I think demonstrates this idea of Jesus appointing for his service. Uh, You all remember Peter. He was the apostle that denied Jesus three times, and here Jesus is resurrected, and Jesus is having an encounter with Peter whereby he's, he's asking Peter the same question three times. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Then feed my sheep. And, and uh, commentators and everybody agrees that, that what, what Jesus is doing is he's reinstating Peter. But there's, there's two interactions that happen here that I think are fascinating. Uh, look in verse uh, 18. This is Jesus speaking to Peter. Truly, truly, I say to you, When you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. Now notice the parenthetical idea in verse 19. This he said to show by what kind of death he, that is Peter, was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Jesus, the king, appointed Peter to his service, and his service included a time and a manner of his death whereby he would glorify God. You see the kingship of Jesus and the appointment to service, but it even goes on. I love this one. This one one is so us. Look in verse 20. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? That's John. That's the author, right? So Peter just gets this statement from Jesus and what does he do? Turns and looks at somebody else and says, when Peter, verse 21, when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Peter's getting all up in somebody else's business. Don't we always do that? Okay, got it, got it, Jesus. But what about him? What are you going to do with him? I want to know about him. What's his deal? And then look at how King Jesus responds. This is is perfect. It's beautiful. Jesus said to him, If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Only a king is going to say something like that. In other words, Jesus is saying, um, who are you responsible for? What have I told you to do? What, what position of service have I appointed for you? You focus on that. You follow me and let me worry with my other subjects. So what, is this, what does this have to do with us? Jesus, the king, has appointed you to his service. Do you you even do you even view your life that way? Are you a business owner? Jesus, the King, appointed you to be in that position. You a spouse? Jesus, the only King, has put you, has appointed you into that position. You a student? You a worker? You a citizen? Every single role and position that we have, our King has placed us there for my happiness, for my comfort. No, it's for His service. I want to challenge us to take on this perspective that Paul has. I want to challenge us to view every role and aspect of our lives in light of our king having appointed us to service. So, not only does Paul recognize that Jesus is the king and has appointed him to service, but additionally, Paul recognizes that Jesus, this king, the only king, has not only appointed him to service but has qualified him to be able to serve. Again, back in the text, look here. Look in verse 13. "'Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus.' The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Paul goes back and again is thinking back in his history and he was just that. I I think the best analogy for Paul today is Paul was a terrorist. He uses three words here, blasphemer. He's saying false things about Jesus. He was um, uh, a blasphemer, a persecutor and an insolent opponent. He was arresting Christians. All that's found in Acts. He references it in Galatians. Um, but he focuses in on the mercy and the grace that he is granted by King Jesus to even qualify him to be a subject in Jesus' kingdom and therefore have the privilege to serve King Jesus. One of my um, favorite stories, it's by C.S. Lewis, Chronicles of Narnia. If you haven't read those, they're great. I recommend them to you. One of those series, it's the the, the book entitled The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. The Dawn Treader is a boat, and they're they're all on the boat in in this book. And there's a particular character in this story. Um, His name, he's he's a cousin to the main characters, and his name is Eustace. Now, if that's your family name or your name, I apologize, but I think Lewis did a great job. It just summarizes this boy. He's just this nasty, wicked boy. He plays a victim all the time. Oh, it's me. They don't understand me. They're against me. Everybody's got it out for me. Uh, just just nastiness, ugliness. And there's a particular scene uh, in this story where the dawn treader has come to an island, and they've been in a storm and had some damage, and When they get to the island, everybody's beginning to work to repair the boat, but Eustace justifies in his mind that he needs to go off and do his own thing because, well, they don't understand, he deserves it, etc., etc. So Eustace goes off on the island somewhere and stumbles upon a cave full of gold and treasure, and there's a dragon there. And the dragon dies or something, and Eustace begins to gather up all the treasure, and he's all excited, but then he begins to worry how these other people are going to steal it from him. And Well, Eustace falls asleep on top of the treasure, and he wakes up. He's a dragon. You see what Lewis is doing with this story? He's identifying what sin has done to us. We are these dragons. Sin has ruined us. It's the same way Paul is talking about, I was this blasphemer, this persecutor, this insolent opponent to to, to Jesus, Well, Eustace is a dragon now, and as the as the story progresses, there comes a scene where Eustace is unable on his own to undragon himself. And so now Aslan, the Christ figure in the book, the lion, shows up. And Aslan says to Eustace, You know, if you want to be undragoned, I have to do it. And it may hurt. And Eustace says yes. And Aslan takes his claws and he's able to cut off all the scales of his dragonness. And when Aslan is finished, there again is Eustace, but Eustace is a totally different boy. He is this kind, helpful individual. It's a picture of salvation. It's what Paul is referencing to us here. It's what Paul's recounting that occurred to him. I received mercy. I deserved destruction, but I was not destroyed. And the grace of my Lord Jesus overflowed on me. Our King, King Jesus, not only appoints us to service... He's a king. He's he's not like a human king who sits back in the throne room and sends people off to fight battle. No, our king comes out of the throne room, comes down to us and fights the battle on his own that we have no hope of fighting whatsoever and therefore qualifies us to be subjects in his kingdom and then gives us the privilege to serve him with every single thing that we are. Do you recognize your King, who is not just the tip of the spear, He is the spear that has qualified you to be in His kingdom and to serve Him? Do you recognize the grace and the mercy that Jesus daily and ongoing lavishes upon us We must be men and women, we must be boys and girls that recognize not only the calamity of our sin, but the overflowing nature of the grace that our King has bought for us. I think there's a biblical phrase, right? He's bought you with His blood. That's the king that we serve. He not only appoints us to his service, he qualifies us for his service. Okay, lastly, Paul identifies that King Jesus, who's appointed him for service, who has qualified him for service, he makes it where this this very service that he allows Paul to do is intended to bring recognition to Jesus. Again, look back at the text. Look in verse 16. This is a a beautiful phrase. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, foremost sinner, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. Paul understands that every aspect of his life, every position, everything is there so that he can be a reflection of the glory, the honor, the greatness, the beauty, the majesty, the mercy, the grace of his King, Jesus I want to illustrate this reality in a bit of an extreme example. Okay? I have a friend, his name is Kevin. He and I met in college. Uh, He's my same age. We're both 49. He lives in Oklahoma. Kevin has a disease called Frederick's ataxia. And I'm not a scientist, but what's been explained to me is basically the nerves in his body are decaying and dying, and he cannot control his body. Okay? When I met him in college, He could sort of walk. I mean, it really wasn't walking. Then he got in a wheelchair. Today, right now, Kevin Ridgell's entire world is a room in his parents' home. He cannot feed himself. He cannot bathe himself. He can't speak. You can't understand him. Um, Kevin's whole world, he, he has a ministry. He emails people. His parents actually are the ones that are typing it, but he sends out Encouragement, pictures, just trying to speak into people's lives. Kevin sent me a letter, I think it was this past summer, and he identified he, he's always cold, he can't eat, he chokes, um, he, he can't do anything, uh, he's barely 90 pounds. Um, I'm telling you, his, his world is limited and from a human perspective, miserable. And yet in this letter... Kevin, Kevin understands this perspective, because in this letter, he's telling me and describing to me what's going on, and then he says, he and I would always talk about why God has done this, what's his intention. And, and, and Kevin goes, "I do not know why I am still alive." But here it comes. Listen. But God has a purpose. That's a believer whose perspective lines up with this perspective that that Paul has encountered here. Paul understands that everything in his life, everything in his life, whether it's positive, maybe you're doing great and things are wonderful, wonderful, that's great. You know why God gave that? To glorify so that your life can glorify God. Maybe you've experienced suffering in, in, in line with what Kevin is suffering. I don't know. All of it, though, I do know this, all of it is intended to give recognition to our great King, to His beauty, to His rulership, to His majesty, to His grace, to His promises, to His faithfulness, to all of it. Everything that our King Jesus brings before us is to bring recognition to Him. So King Jesus has appointed you for His service, King Jesus has qualified you for His service, and King Jesus has done that so that every aspect of your life will glorify Him and give recognition to Him to a lost and dying world that desperately needs to bend their knee to Jesus. Now, I want to close here, and I want to, I want to speak to the two type of people that, that are in any room, anywhere we go. The first would be a person that uh, I'm going to describe as as someone who is outside of the faith. Now, that's just simply Christian vernacular that means somebody who has not fully embraced who Jesus is and what this grace is all about and what this forgiveness is. And and I want to plead with you, consider King Jesus. Here's what he's basically said about himself. He's the king. He's the creator. He's the creator. He is the authority in all of the universe, and he humbled himself and became a man, God in the flesh, became a man, lived among us, died in our place, took the wrath that was due us, took it upon himself so that we could be fully forgiven. That is the message of this King Jesus. Now, the other type of person that would be in this room is someone who is a Christian, who has embraced that, and I want to I speak to you for a moment. Do not misplace your purpose in 2019. Recognize Jesus as King and recognize that whatever place, whatever role, whatever whatever is in your life, your King knows and He's appointed you and He's qualified you and He will be with you and It's there and you're there so that you can glorify Him, so that you can bring recognition to Him. That's who this Jesus is, the only King. He appoints us, He qualifies us, and then He gives us the privilege of representing and reflecting Him. May He do that for us throughout 2019. Let me close in prayer. Father, we thank you. We thank you that we have a king who is faithful and worthy of our service. We thank you, Father, for the mercy and the grace that King Jesus has provided for us, that He has qualified us to be subject in his kingdom and he has appointed us to his service and we long to be people that reflect him rightly so that he is glorified and so that he is he is made much of father do that with our lives for your name's sake we ask all these things in christ's name amen